Chapter seventy four of Wild Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Goff. Wild Wales by George Burrow. Chapter seventy four. The Monday morning was gloomy and misty, but it did not rain a circumstance which gave me no little pleasure, as I intended to continue my journey without delay. After breakfast I bade farewell to my kind host, and also to the freckled maid, and departed, my satchel over my shoulder, and my umbrella in my hand. I had consulted the landlord on the previous day as to where I had best make my next halt, and had been advised by him to stop at Machloid. He said that if I felt tired I should put up at Dinas Mauthir, about two miles on this side of Machloid, but that if I were not, he would advise me to go on, as I should find very poor accommodation at Dinas. On my inquiring as to the nature of the road, he told me that the first part of it was tolerably good, along the eastern side of the lake, but that the greater part of it was very rough, over hills and mountains, belonging to the great chain of Arran, which constituted upon the whole the wildest part of all Wales. Passing by the northern end of the lake, I turned to the south, and proceeded along a road a little way above the side of the lake. The day had now, to a certain extent, cleared up, and the lake was occasionally gilded by beams of bright sunshine. After walking a little way, I overtook a lad, dressed in a white greatcoat, and attended by a tolerably large black dog. I addressed him in English, but finding that he did not understand me, I began to talk to him in Welsh. "'That's a fine dog.' said I. Lad. Very fine, sir, and a good dog. Though young, he has been known to kill rats. Myself. What is his name? Lad. His name is Toby, sir. Myself. And what is your name? Lad. John Jones, sir. Myself. And what is your father's? Lad. Waladur Jones, sir. Myself. Is Waladur the same as Cadwallader? Lad. In truth, sir, it is. Myself. That is a fine name. Lad. It is, sir. I have heard my father say that it was the name of a king. Myself. What is your father? Lad. A farmer, sir. Myself. Does he farm his own land? Lad. He does not, sir. He is tenant to Mr. Price of Hulas. Myself. Do you live far from Bala? Lad. Not very far, sir myself. Are you going home now? Lad. I am not, sir. Our home is on the other side of Bala. I am going to see a relation up the road. Myself. Bala is a nice place. Lad. It is, sir, but not so fine as old Bala. Myself. I never heard of such a place. Where is it? Lad. Under the lake, sir. Myself. What do you mean? Lad. It stood in the old time where the lake now is and a fine city it was, full of fine houses, towers, and castles, but with neither church nor chapel, for the people neither knew God nor cared for him, and thought of nothing but singing and dancing and other wicked things. So God was angry with them, and one night, when they were all busy at singing and dancing and the like, God gave the word, and the city sank down into unknown, and the lake boiled up where it once stood. Myself. That was a long time ago. Glad. In truth, sir, it was. Myself. Before the days of King Cadwallader. Lad. 
I dare say it was, sir. I walked fast, but the lad was a shrewd walker, and though encumbered with his greatcoat, contrived to keep tolerably up with me. The road went over hill and dale, but upon the whole more upward than downward. After proceeding about an hour and a half, we left the lake, to the southern extremity of which we had nearly come, somewhat behind, and bore away to the south-east, gradually ascending. At length the lad, pointing to a small farmhouse on the side of a hill, told me he was bound thither, and presently, bidding me farewell, turned aside up a footpath which led towards it. About a minute afterwards a small, delicate, furred creature, with a white mark round its neck, and with a little tail trailing on the ground, ran swiftly across the road. It was a weasel, or something of that genus. On observing it I was glad that the lad and the dog were gone, as between them they would probably have killed it. I hate to see poor wild animals persecuted and murdered, lose my appetite for dinner at hearing the screams of a hare pursued by greyhounds, and am silly enough to feel disgust and horror at the squeals of a rat in the fangs of a terrier, which one of the sporting tribe once told me were the sweetest sounds in nature. I crossed a bridge over a deep gully, which discharged its waters into a river in a valley on the right. Aaron rose in great majesty on the farther side of this vale, its head partly shrouded in mist. The day now became considerably overcast. I wandered on over much rough ground, till I came to a collection of houses at the bottom of a pass leading up a steep mountain. Seeing the door of one of the houses open, I peeped in, and a woman who was sitting knitting in the interior rose and came out to me. I asked the name of the place. The name which she told me sounded something like T. Kappel Sire, the house of the Kappel of the Carpenter. I inquired the name of the river in the valley. Cunlhuid, hoary-headed, she seemed to say. But here, as well as with respect to her first answer, I speak under correction, for her Welsh was what my old friends the Spaniards would call muy querado, that is, close or indistinct. She asked me if I was going up the bulch. I told her I was. Rather you than I, said she, looking up to the heavens, which had assumed a very dismal, not to say awful, appearance. Presently I began to ascend the pass, or bulch, a green hill on my right, intercepting the view of Aaron, another very lofty hill on my left, with wood towards the summit. Coming to a little cottage which stood on the left, I went to the door and knocked. A smiling young woman opened it, of whom I asked the name of the house. Tinant, the house of the dingle, she replied. Do you live alone? said I. No, my mother lives here. Any sysneg? No, said she with a smile. Sysneg of no use here. Her face looked the picture of kindness. I was now indeed in Wales amongst the real Welsh. I went on some way. Suddenly there was a moaning sound and rain coming down in torrents. Seeing a deserted cottage on my left, I went in. There was fodder in it, and it appeared to serve partly as a barn, partly as a cow-house. The rain poured upon the roof, and I was glad I had found shelter. A small brook precipitated itself down rocks in four successive falls. The rain having ceased, I proceeded, and after a considerable time reached the top of the pass. From thence I had a view of the valley and lake of Bala, the lake looking like an immense sheet of steel. A round hill, however, somewhat intercepted the view of the latter. The scene of my immediate neighbourhood was very desolate. Moory hillocks were all about me, of a wretched russet colour. On my left, on the very crest of the hill up which I had long been toiling, 
stood a black pyramid of turf, a pole on the top of it. The road now wore nearly due west down a steep descent. Aaron was slightly to the north of me. I, however, soon lost sight of it, as I went down the farther side of the hill, which lies over against it to the south-east. The sun, now descending, began to shine out. The pass down which I was now going was yet wilder than the one up which I had lately come. Close on my right was the steep hill's side, out of which the road or path had been cut, which was here and there overhung by crags of wondrous forms. On my left was a very glorious glen, beyond which was a black, precipitous, rocky wall, from a chasm near the top of which tumbled with a rushing sound a slender brook, seemingly the commencement of a mountain stream, which hurried into a valley far below towards the west. When nearly at the bottom of the descent, I stood still to look around me. Grand and wild was the scenery. On my left were noble green hills, the tops of which were beautifully gilded by the rays of the setting sun. On my right a black, gloomy, narrow valley or glen showed itself. Two enormous craggy hills of immense altitude, one to the west and the other to the east of the entrance. That to the east terminated in a peak. The background to the north was a wall of rocks forming a semicircle, something like a bent bow with the head downward. Behind this bow, just in the middle, rose the black loaf of Aaron. A torrent tumbled from the lower part of the semicircle, and after running for some distance to the south, turned to the west, the way I was going. Observing a house a little way within the gloomy vale, I went towards it, in the hope of finding somebody in it who could give me information respecting this wild locality. As I drew near the door, two tall men came forth, one about sixty, the other about half that age. The elder had a sharp, keen look, the younger a lumpy and a stupid one. They were dressed like farmers. On my saluting them in English, the elder returned my salutation in that tongue, but in rather a gruff tone. The younger turned away his head and said nothing. "'What is the name of this house?' said I, pointing to the building. "'The name of it,' said the old man, "'is T. Maur.' "'Do you live in it?' said I. "'Yes, I live in it.' "'What waterfall is that?' said I, pointing to the torrent tumbling down the crag at the farther end of the gloomy vale. "'The fountain of the royal Dovey.' "'Why do you call the Dovey royal?' said I. "'Because it is the king of the rivers in these parts.' "'Does the fountain come out of a rock?' "'It does not.' It comes out of a lake, a lean. Where is the lean? Over that crag, at the foot of Aran Vaur. Is it a large lake? It is not. It is small. Deep? Very. Strange things in it? I believe there are strange things in it. His English now became broken. Crocodiles? I do not know what crocodiles be. Effink? Ah! No, I do not think there be effing there. Hugh Gadan, in the old time, killed the effing there, and in all did lakes in Wales. He draw them out of the water with his echin, banog, his humpty oxen, and when he get them out, he burn their bodies on the fire. He good man for that. What do you call this art? said I, looking up at the high pinnacled hill on my right. I call that tap neath ir irari. Is not that the top nest of the eagles? I believe it is. Ah, I see you understand Welsh. A little, said I. Are there eagles there now? No, no eagle now. Gone like Avanc. Yes, gone like Avanc. 
but not so long. My father see eagle on tap neath, but my father never see avanc in the clean. How far to Dinas? About three mile. Any thieves about? No, no thieves here, but what come from England. And he looked at me with a strange, grim smile. What has become of the red-haired robbers of Maozoi? Ah, said the old man, staring at me, I see you are a Kamru. The red-haired thieves of Maozoi, I see you are from these parts. What's become of them? Oh, dead, hung, lived long time ago, long before Eagle left Tapneeth. He spoke true. The red-haired banditti of Maozoi were exterminated long before the conclusion of the sixteenth century after having long been the terror not only of these wild regions, but of the greater part of North Wales. They were called the red-haired banditti because certain leading individuals amongst them had red foxy hair. "'Is that young man your son?' said I, after a little pause. "'Yes, he my son.' "'Has he any English?' "'No, he no English, but he plenty of Welsh, that is, if he see reason.' I spoke to the young man in Welsh, asking him if he had ever been up to the Tapneath, but he made no answer. "'He no care for your question,' said the old man. "'Ask him price of pig.' I asked the young fellow the price of hogs, whereupon his face brightened up, and he not only answered my question, but told me that he had a fat hog to sell. "'Ha, ha!' said the old man. "'He plenty of Welsh now, for he see reason. To other question he no Welsh at all, no more than English, for he see no reason.' What business he on tap neath with eagle? His business down below in sty with pig. Ah, he look lump, but he no fool. No more about pig than you or I, or any one, twixt here and Machanlath. He now asked me where I came from, and on my telling him from Bala, his heart appeared to warm towards me, and saying that I must be tired, he asked me to step in and drink buttermilk. But I declined his offer with thanks, and bidding the two adieu, returned to the road. I hurried along, and soon reached a valley which abounded with trees and grass. I crossed a bridge over a brook, not what the old man had called the Dovey, but the stream whose source I had seen high up the Bulch, and presently came to a place where the two waters joined. Just below the confluence on a fallen tree was seated a man decently dressed. His eyes were fixed on the rushing stream. I stopped and spoke to him. He had no English, but I found him a very sensible man. I talked to him about the source of the Dovey. He said it was a disputed point which was the source. He himself was inclined to believe that it was the Pistil up the Bulch. I asked him of what religion he was. He said he was of the Church of England, which was the church of his father and his grandfather, and which he believed to be the only true church. I inquired if it flourished. He said it did, but that it was dreadfully persecuted by all classes of dissenters, who, though they were continually quarrelling with one another, agreed in one thing, namely to persecute the church. I asked him if he ever read. He said he read a great deal, especially the works of Hugh Morris, and that reading them had given him a love of the sights of nature. He added that his greatest delight was to come to the place where he then was of an evening, and look at the waters and hills. I asked him what trade he was. The trade of Joseph, said he, smiling. Sire. "'Farewell, brother,' said I. "'I am not a carpenter, but like you I read the works of Hugh Morris, and am of the Church of England.' I then shook him by the hand and departed. I passed a village with a stupendous mountain just behind it to the north, which I was told was the Moyle Vrith, 
or the party-coloured moil. I was now drawing near to the western end of the valley. Scenery of the wildest and most picturesque description was rife and plentiful to a degree. Hills were here, hills were there, some tall and sharp, others huge and humpy. Hills were on every side. Only a small opening to the west seemed to present itself. What a valley! I exclaimed. But on passing through the opening I found myself in another, wilder and stranger, if possible. Full to the west was a long hill, rising up like the roof of a barn. An enormous round hill on its northeast side, and on its southeast, the tail of the range which I had long had on my left, there were trees and groves and running waters, but all in deep shadow, for the night was now close at hand. "'What is the name of this place?' I shouted to a man on horseback, who came dashing through a brook, with a woman in a Welsh dress behind him. "'Abakawach, Saxon,' said the man, in a deep guttural voice, and lashing his horse disappeared rapidly in the night. "'Abakawach,' I cried, springing half a yard into the air, "'why, that's the place where Ellis Wynne composed his immortal Sleeping Bard, the book which I translated in the blessed days of my youth.' Oh, no wonder that Sleeping Bard is a wild and wondrous work, seeing that it was composed amidst the wild and wonderful scenes which I here behold. I proceeded onwards up an ascent. After some time I came to a bridge across the stream, which a man told me was called Avon Geres. It runs into the Dovey, coming down with a rushing sound from a wild vale to the northeast, between the huge barn-like hill and Moyle Vrith. The barn-like hill, I was informed, was called Pendin. I soon reached Dinas Mauthir, which stands on the lower part of a high hill, connected to the Pendin. Dinas, though at one time a place of considerable importance, if we may judge from its name, which signifies a fortified city, is at present little more than a collection of filthy huts. But though a dirty, squalid place, I found it anything but silent and deserted. Fierce-looking, red-haired men, who seemed as if they might be descendants of the red-haired banditti of old, were staggering about, and sounds of drunken revelry echoed from the huts. I subsequently learned that Dinas was the headquarters of miners, the neighbourhood abounding with mines of both lead and stone. I was glad to leave it behind me. Matloid is to the south of Dinas. The way to it is by a romantic gorge down which flows the royal dovey. As I proceeded along this gorge, the moon, rising above Molvrith, illumined my path. In about half an hour I found myself before the inn at Machloid. End of chapter 74